Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo Midpoint Book Reflection Another Lookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. As the title suggests, this week we are departing from our usual format because we are at the exact midpoint of a Game of Thrones. I thought we'd take an opportunity to step back, widen the scope. A lot of the meta with friend of the podcast, Carl Nellis. Carl, you may remember from the previous visit is in books, he's in podcasting, he's also got a graduate degree in medievalism, and he's one of my favorite people to talk to about Game of Thrones. This week we talk a lot about the modern American imagination and the myth of a medieval Europe that exists in America about the time that Martin is writing this work. And we talk about, you know, whether Martin is a product of this mythic imagination or if he intends to subvert it. And then Aaron, Bosmang Aaron is back to talk about his project related to Foundation. That'll be an Aaron and Jim joint covering Apple TV's adaptation of Asimov's epic reimagination of the fall of the Roman Empire set in galactic scope. So big scopes all around. I hope everyone's watching along with Foundation and following with the Foundation coverage on Bald Move. Without further ado, here is Carl Z. Nellis. Carl, people that are interested in your podcast library, where can they find these? Well, the show that I work on the most is called Unobscured, and so you can you can find it uh, in podcast players everywhere. So tell me what project are you working on with an obscured right now? Yeah, so this uh, this year we've been researching, writing, talking with uh, historians, and we've pulled together a documentary on uh, Rasputin. Oh, Gre- nice. Uh, Grigory Rasputin and his role in the, the lives of the Romanovs uh, as a religious teacher, as a political force, and then especially as a mythic presence as all this propaganda was spun up against him and the role that all of that played in... Uh, the end of the Romanov dynasty, the Russian Empire, the First World War. That sounds fascinating. So, yeah, I, I do the research and writing. Aaron Mankey is the host. And you'll hear from a lot of great historians on nice. it, Yeah. So listeners that are, that are interested in that um, can search for Unobscured, something along those lines. Unobscured podcast. Wonderful. Carl, uh, today, as you know, we will be doing a mid-book reflection. I love having these big-picture sort of wide-scope conversations. Yeah. Um, And every now and again, I get a chance to do it in this chapter-by-chapter review. 
but every now and again, I want to set aside a little bit of space just to talk about the big picture stuff. I love it too. And it gets me back into my literary analysis mode. And I, I, I'm not always, you know, in that mode these days, but it's, I love being there. It's home for me. So, so here's what I like to do. I've tried my hand at creating a synopsis for the entire first half of the book. <laughs> so right. clearly this is going to be very broad strokes, but I'm going to go ahead and read this. Okay. Ned has reluctantly become King Robert's second in command while also investigating Robert's many infidelities in the hope to discover the cause of John Arne's death. Robert is worried about a new Targaryen pretender, which creates a wedge between he and Ned. Ned resigns in protest, leaving him open to Jamie's attack. Jamie has done his best to keep his relationship with Cersei a secret including pushing Bran from a tower window. Otherwise, he seeks retribution against Ned because Catelyn has captured Tyrion. Catelyn has captured Tyrion because she believes that he's conspired to murder her son and perhaps Jon Arryn too. Tyrion remains a prisoner at the Eyrie because of this, but has managed to make a few friends along the way, including Jon Snow and Bronn. Jon Snow is adjusting to a hard life at the Wall as an acolyte of the Night's Watch. Arya and Sansa were both enjoying their new lives at King's Landing and resist the idea of returning to Winterfell. Sansa wants to marry Joffrey, as promised. Arya is thriving under her new dancing master. Danny is finding her voice, power, and vision as the new Khaleesi of Khal Drogo's nomadic tribe. She has cast aside her brother's power and hopes to place her son on the Iron Throne. Finally, Littlefinger, Varys, Illyrio, and Jorah continue to scheme in the shadows, all the while something cold and monstrous lives and looms beyond the wall. Mm. That is my mid-book Relukaloo synopsis, <laughs> I was worried, you know, that there are some really key characters that have not even been mentioned in the synopsis. Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, I, I mentioned Zero about Theon. I didn't really mention Rob. The, their stories mm -hmm. kind of haven't begun yet in the sense of right. being important to the even plot. Even so, listening to you layer on <laughs> attempts <laughs> to try to include everyone who you did include, sure. the thing that it emphasizes for me is that even in book one, the breadth of the story, the scope, mm -hmm. right? The scale, mm -hmm. the number of people whose stories we're getting in this book. <laughs> that this is uh, an attempt to crowd, you know, like I just, <laughs> I think about opening the pages and having all these voices shout up. It's just such a, I, I recently read a fantasy novel that I really liked that was fairly small. And it basically covered the lives of four people from the beginning to right. the end of the book. This is not that kind of book. <laughs> no, it's not. And on top of that, there's at least two levels of storytelling happening. Martin has taken upon himself to start to tell the stories of several different point of view characters. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a half a dozen characters that he's really sort of creating a backstory for. Uh, he wants to explore their settings, explore what motivates them. And how they relate to this these plots that he's putting in motion. In addition to that, he's also trying to tell us 
the history of Westeros, or at least mm-hmm. the parts of that history that will end up repeating themselves in the lives of these characters, or as sort of an element of world building, trying to tell us enough about the world and the history of the world to make these particular characters authentic in relationship to that world. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, I mean, at this point, if we just go by what this book has told us, you know, we have some notion of like Targaryen dynasties. We have some notion about Robert's rebellion. We have some notion about sort of the history of the night's watch, but we don't know (laughs) a whole lot. I mean, we, we know a whole lot more about, why Sansa wants to be queen then we know about sort of the the history of the white walkers yeah we also we know a few other things too we know um a little bit about great houses and bannermen right and sure. and systems right. of vassalage and, and patronage right sure and how much of that is okay so that's a good point how much of that is martin drawing on our modern imagination of sort of an idealized medieval world. That's actually something I really wanted to talk a lot about because (laughs) (laughs) me too. Because because as I've been thinking about what does this book give us, you know, kind of the big picture reflections that, that we wanted to get into, I was thinking about history Uh, and the way that some people talk about game of Thrones. I had a friend (laughs) before I started to read it, who, who introduced it to me. He said, Finally, uh, like fantasy has grown up or something like sure, that. Sure, sure, sure. You know, yeah. and now we're reading a book that tells us what it was really like back then. Which is, a lot, I, which is not, <laughs> which is sort of this lie that we're happy to acquiesce to, or at least we're, we're suspending disbelief, right? Yes, yes. And the two pieces of that, that he knows he's talking about fantasy, but he places fantasy at a real point in time. Sure. <laughs> you know, I was like, whoa, like it was a mind bender. Well, that's how, that's the power of our imagination, right? And the, and really that was sort of the world that was passed on in oral history. You know, that there that dragons and unicorns are real, like my cousin saw them. My my cousin two villages over actually saw one once. That's <laughs> yes, all yes. part of the world that sort of that that oral history is going to put forth to us. And to your point, I was thinking about fantasy and even our idea that like fantasies are childish, still kind of reflecting on those things that my friend said when he was so excited about this Mm -hmm. fantasy series that he was introducing me to. And we have this idea about fantasy being juvenile. And I was thinking about the Victorian fantasists and especially uh, considering Martin as an American writer dealing with medieval stories. I go back to Howard Pyle who was uh, an American uh, painter, but also a writer of adventure stories for kids. He did uh, Robin Hood that was extremely popular. He wrote many uh, Arthurian legends into American English in the late 1800s and early 1900s that were extremely popular. He wrote a book called Men of Iron. He wrote a book called Otto of the Silver Hand. And I read all of these as a kid. This was like the Robin Hood that I read. Mm -hmm. This was the, the... Arthur that I read, even though it was written a hundred years before me, you know, late, uh, late 1800s. But there was a period of time where there were all these Victorian era attempts to reclaim the medieval 
for modern purposes. And when I read Martin, I see him responding. You know, I went on to study medieval literature and, and to spend some time as a medievalist among medievalists in the academy. And when I read Martin, I see him responding more to Victorian medievalism hmm. than to the medieval itself in many, many cases. And I even think about your conversation, your recent conversation with uh, Ken Monshine, mm-hmm. where you were talking about weapons. Uh, you know, and he says the, the, the names for weapons that Martin uses and the way he, he writes about medieval weapons sounds more like an antiquarian than a medievalist. Than, than a medieval person. Or at right? least he pushes them to get together. Like he pushes a lot of ideas that would never have existed or, or things that would have never existed at the same time. Yes. He kind of pushes them into this make-believe world of his to so maybe to give it a little bit more texture, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that was one of the things that when I started studying medieval history was mind-expanding was realizing that what we popularly say is medieval, the Middle Ages, Mm -hmm. spans, well, the globe over the course of a thousand years, (laughs) you know, from 500 to 1500. Right. And we say, oh, that's the medieval. And exists in different pockets of varying cultures, uh, you know, even in the same time period, you know, it's from... It's not going to be the same in Spain as it is in Scotland. It's just that's just going to be different. Yes. Well, and I was thinking about those Victorian medievalists and we're talking um, the period of the British Empire. Uh, You know, we're talking about British Mandate Palestine, Orientalism, driving imperial expansion. We're talking about in America, Jim Crow era. And these are in many ways fantasies of empire and and merging incredible diversity across a long time frame into some kind of homogenous thing that we can that we can when i say we i mean those victorian fantasists claim as a precedent for our current cultural political project all and, right I, this is a, this is crucially important i'm really happy we're getting here cuz i know you've done a wor- lot of work on this topic could you explain to me you threw me off a little bit when you included jim crow into the conversation. Mm-hmm. Could you explain to me how that relates to the medieval Europe we've been talking about? Sure. Well, because when I'm thinking about the American context and when and why certain Americans like Howard Pyle or going back to Thomas Jefferson, mm. who, lo- who loved old English stuff, there were American medievalists. There were, you know, there were scholars who had a cultural project of trying to justify what they were doing in the Jim Crow era. You know, they were trying to build cultural support for white supremacy. You know, some of it was backfill. They, they, were already, they already had their way of thinking about who was important and who was not. But they wanted to have a lot of stories to tell about why they were important as so, powerful, right. rich, so really white Americans. from this idealized golden age of white culture before it had been yes tainted yes. or something like that in other words creating a history that never existed for the purpose of vision casting in the present yes and and when i call their work fantasies of empire i think they were doing something very similar to what martin is doing where you know the kind of conversations that you have been able to have with some amazing historians on this show about Martin, like, which pieces of medieval history did he pick up? 
where does this come from? Where does that come from? Mm-hmm. Um, the, all the conversations you've had with, with uh, Jenna Matthews have been really fun, answering questions that people have about what's really medieval here. That was the same kind of thing that medievalists were doing when they were pulling together the discipline even of medieval studies. And they were doing some of this flattening and homogenizing, saying, mm-hmm. we can talk about something that is the medieval, that is distinct, and ignore the scope, ignore most of the world. You know, just look at Europe. Just look at the people in Europe that we want to claim as our precedent. And I even think about a particular case where when I say the Jim Crow era, I'm not just talking about the South because I did some work on a guy in Boston named Eben Norton Horsford. His family was German immigrants, and he wanted to get in with Boston High Society. He studied chemistry in Germany, uh, came back and was the chair of chemistry at Harvard, but that didn't give him much social power. And what, he still wasn't at what point with the, did he live? This is late 1800s. Okay. He made his money uh, selling the <laughs> leavening agent for hardtack to the Union Army. So this is a war contract. Gets mm. him a lot of money. War contracts then, as now, were very lucrative. And he pours his money into the cultural projects of the people he wanted to get in with. But they had this idea that, Bo- that, that Vikings had settled Boston. And they really wanted to push it. And he said, you have this project, but these families didn't have this much money at this point, late 1800s, 1870s, 1880s. So he funded all their projects in order to get in with Boston High Society. But their point in doing this was to say, Boston is white Northern European. Our precedent is the Vikings. That's mm. our point of origin. And they were specifically, the, the racial, some of the racial anxieties that were being expressed in that claim were about pushing back on this growing Irish and Italian identity. Southern European, you know, Catholic, Mediterranean. Uh, they were publishing all these books. <laughs> sometimes they were not subtle. One of the books they published was called uh, America Not Discovered by Columbus. Right. With impetus from the Spanish, Columbus the Italian could not get credit for establishing white America. Something like <laughs> right. that. Right. Yes. So you see in this period across American life, white, educated, wealthy people looking for a precedent for them that they could claim as unique. Right. The nation builders of the Jim Crow era in America wanted to reclaim as the point of origin. But what they were doing, like Martin, was picking and choosing from the medieval past to build a kind of uh, bleached white fantasy right and that was what became their point of origin yeah that's you know you and i both have some experience in religious history Mm -hmm. and the myth of beginnings is such an important political tool and what i hear you saying is that in many ways the origin story for white america was created hodgepodge out of a very selective gleaning of this medieval white Europe or something like that, or the imagination of a medieval white Europe. Yeah, and the, and the people, it wasn't like this was everyone doing this, right? But there were, there were certain groups and communities of people who were, who mm-hmm. had that project. And there, there's a medievalist named uh, Matthew Vernon who's written on uh, what black communities were doing with the medieval past across the similar period. Really interesting. But the money <laughs> and the, the reach of these white, especially scholars who were, in universities, who were then communicating with people in positions of uh, 
you know, cultural influence mm-hmm. outside the university at the time. The kinds of things they published meant that 100 years later, I was still reading Howard Pyle's books. So bringing this to Martin, I wonder if yes. we should imagine, I suppose, that Martin is both a product of that mythic imagination, but also sort of a postmodern critic of that imagination as well. Yes. I'm just thinking about sort of the ethnic representation in, in the story, for yeah, instance. Yeah, right. Right. You know, how how much is he merging ancient history and medieval history and, you know, <laughs> yes. Amer- the American, you know, American history into this War of the Roses retelling? I think he's he, I think he is consciously critiquing and you're saying maybe he's consciously critiquing the Victoria Victorian yes. era as well. Yes. I think so. I mean, some of your other guests, medievalists, have talked about the kind of uh, romantic versus gothic or like the technicolor versus grimdark way of thinking about the sure. Middle Ages. And Victorians were really doing that work of either romanticizing, or especially romanticizing the Middle Ages. And many commentators on Martin have looked at the ways that he is subverting the romantic version. And, and we can talk more about today. You mentioned maybe we'll get into chivalry. Um, and some of the really romanticized ways of looking at the Middle Ages and stories about the Middle Ages, those come to us through the, those kind of Victorian era, Jim Crow era medievalists and, and writers and popularizers. And so, yeah, I do see a lot of what Martin is doing, responding and often subverting, pushing back on, <laughs> you know, pulling apart those fantasies of empire mm. that were sanitized and that were valorized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The chivalry thing is interesting to me. I, so I, after my conversation with Ken, I was asking him about knighthood and, you know, and all of its variations and whatnot. Mm. And he sent me this essay that he had written and it was really fascinating. One of the things he said in the essay was that that idealization of the knight uh, or, you know, in the, the knighthood, we think, you know, has these three elements of it has this religious element. It has this sort of uh, warrior, professional warrior element, but it also has this sort of um, social elite uh, courtesy element uh, to knighthood. But that these noble men were doing is they were trying to create the ideal back then. In fact, even though it's an idealized past, it was an idealized past that they tried to invent and they tried to push forward because Mm. it was propaganda. They wanted there to be a system whereby the nobility looked noble. And one thing that he said that I thought was really interesting is that he said not every knight was was a nobleman. Yes. But every yes. nobleman wanted everyone else to think he was a knight. <laughs> right. So, in other words, it was propaganda that got pushed forward and because there was no one to really subvert, I mean, I shouldn't say no one. There were there were cr- critics of chivalry back then, but the dominant narrative was that the ruling class is a chivalrous group, a noble group. And so the propaganda became sort of the foundation for this mythology that, you know, for several centuries afterwards was just kind of swallowed whole. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and- that's, to me, that's fascinating because it maybe doesn't tell us about how the world really was, but it does tell us about sort of the highest aspirations of the nobility of that world. 
Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking about chivalry in relation to Game of Thrones through a couple of texts. There's a scholar named uh, Carol Parrish Jameson who published a book in 2018 called Chivalry in Westeros, The Knightly Code of A Song of Ice and Fire. Hmm. And she does a great job going back and looking at the development of chivalry across what we might call that whole medieval period, looks at regional variations, looks at where and when something like skill in the field of battle, you know, prowess was the mark of a knight relative to uh, franchise or, you know, noble birth and noble bearing and uh, looks at it in relation to courtesy, you know, so she gives you this whole history of the development of this chivalry propaganda in the Middle Ages. And then she looks at which pieces of that, (laughs) you know, it's like it's a stream and things are flowing by over that thousand years. Right. uh, That we call the Middle Ages and which pieces of it Martin picks as they flow by, you know, goes, well, we'll go to the 700s in France over here for that thing. We'll go to 1300s England over here for that thing. And here's where, you know, heroic virtues get developed really into chivalry. So we'll take a little of that and, and use that in Westeros. So I found it a really fascinating study um, looking at and the interaction between a fantasist, uh, you know, alive today, writing today, and how he was able to make use of and wanted to interact with, especially Arthurian stuff. She does a lot with uh, Mallory's uh, More to Arthur that mm. is really fascinating, but that comes v- very late. The thing about More to Arthur is it's reflecting back on centuries and kind of is itself a work of synthesis thinking about knighthood pulling together the pieces of that propaganda of what is a knight and chivalry and nobility right so certainly martin is a critic of the mythology that we're talking about and chivalry being a part of that world building right mm-hmm. but to what extent is he a product of it you know he's writing in the mid 90s Yes. And there's been a massive amount of work on the medieval world since then, right? So he cannot Truly. be the beneficiary of scholarship between now and then. So then the question is, let's say he was sort of a student of medieval history, but he's writing now, What would the, how would the story look different? Yeah, there's a scholar named uh, Kavita Mudin Finn who's written a lot on that point, especially relative to the lives of women in the Middle Ages. Queens, peasants, nobility but especially to female friendships. And she's written on, on Martin and said, he doesn't have a lot to say about female friendships. There aren't too many s- groups of women or strong bonds between women at the center of the story. Mm-hmm. There's a lot about male friendships, and there's a lot about uh, women in relation to men. There are right. some does family this, relationships. Does this, uh, the first half of this book pass the Bechtel test? Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, um, it'd, it'd be curious to find out because we have relationships like between Kat and Lysa, but they're usually talking about men, right? Yeah, yeah. So famously, and, the Bechtel test would have to be, do you have a female, a named female character who has a conversation with another named female character and that their conversation isn't about a man? Right, right, yeah. And, uh, and Kavita Budin Finn in her writing says, you know, one of the things she looks at is all this amazing evidence of women's lives across time, across the Middle Middle Ages. And a lot of that scholarship that's turned its attention there has been since Martin started writing. 
You know, so like you right. say, sure. not the kind of history of the Middle Ages that was being published in the 60s, 70s, 80s that he then drew on mm-hmm. when he started writing. Um, so there are, to your point, really missing pieces. So when you said that, I was, the first thing that came to mind was, was Finn and uh, Mood and Finn and her work. Um, because she asked some of those same questions looking at, well, here's what, where some attention has gone from the scholarship mm-hmm. in, since the 90s and early 2000s that has really helped us to see the what we might call a real uh, medieval world with more detail. And a lot of that is, is missing because Martin's talked about the fact that he did try to draw on, on history and scholarship. And, you know, he, he pulled from the books by Joseph and Francis uh, Guise on, you know, life in a medieval village, life in a medieval castle. But they were publishing in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about... Are there certain world-building parts of this story that interest you especially relative to sort of maybe a few of your favorite characters or something like that? Yeah, for me, it's animals and animal bodies. This comes from some work I did in the way that animals and humans live together in the Middle Ages. I think about (laughs) in all kinds of contexts, but I'll start with the military. We're thinking about how expensive heavy cavalry is to run out, you know, to outfit. Uh, And I was thinking today, you know, today it's like, who can buy a helicopter? Sure, yeah, right. You know, (laughs) so, but a lot of what, uh, looking back, provided the power, you know, in the days before the internal combustion engine or, you know, let alone nuclear power, um, we're looking at a lot of muscle power, animal power, horsepower, you know, and... In the study I did on on medieval animals, I was looking at a lot of, you know, kind of symbolism and things like that. But the material culture of the Middle Ages was, <laughs> you know, it was, it was metal, wood and stone, but it was but it was fur and bone and sinew. Um, sure. And at the same time, uh, it was also not just turning animals into raw materials, but it was also human and animal life lived together. Um, you know, pest control uh, in your granary was cats, you know. Um, and there's a lot in Martin on horses. And of course, the dire wolves are so fascinating. And you have and the ravens. With the dragons. I mean, that's your yes, postal service, yes. right? <laughs> right, right. Especially, yeah, to take that kind of fantasy element of like, are Merging the raven mm. magically with the homing pigeon. It's so fun. Um, we, and we haven't so, seen a lot of this part in Martin, but there were certain, you know, leeches and maggots were used in healthcare. Yes, yes. I remember so that, when I was that would reading, be an element of sort of the, the synchronicity between animal life and human life. Yes, yes. Well, and I love medieval bestiaries. So I remember reading uh, Bodley MS-764. It's called, you know, such a compelling title in the classification <laughs> system. Um, but it's a great medieval bestiary. The, the illustrations are gorgeous. Uh-huh. But in the article on puppies, um, the, the line is, the tongues of puppies, see if I can remember this exactly, I probably can't, but are very good for wounds of the intestines. Oh, gosh. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> now, what I hope they meant was that puppies should lick the wounds. I think out. that's probably what it means, but <laughs> it could actually mean something else. I uh, know. Nope. Nope. No. No other possibilities. It's that the puppy comes and it licks you, and it's nice. <laughs> well, that would be better to me than cutting out the tongues of the puppy and using it in some sort of 
<laughs> yes. Elixir. Yeah. But uh, right, the way that medieval folks wrote about animals is fascinating. And they're they're drawing from ancient texts. They're drawing from whatever the guy down the street knows. Right. You know, the the interesting compilation of religious knowledge, local knowledge, ancient knowledge to a limited degree that's all compiled often then with incredible illustrations is just so inspiring to me. Right. Okay. So, all right. So let's bring this to Martin's world. So certainly Martin has a lot of, you know, crucial animal, not just, I mean, a lot of zoological themes. uh, Yes. And sort of the blurring the lines between humans and animals in his work too. Mm Hmm. Yeah. And warging, right? I mean, like you're saying, that's one of those, uh, huge questions about animalizing humans and humanizing animals, um, where you see that movement going back and forth. And you've already talked before about Hodor and that case where Bran walks into Hodor in the show. Right, right, right. Um, and what are the ethics of that? And is it kind of animalizing Hodor, dehumanizing him in some way? Um Sure. Yeah. Or there's a certain sense in which the warg and his direwolf have this symbiotic relationship, and you you get the sense like eh, this is just sort of this psychic connection. But it's actually more than that. It's that the human imposes the will and mind onto the beast and pushes the beast's will and mind to the background. Mm-hmm. Um, and collects some uh, surveillance data <laughs> from right. the eyes and yeah, nose yeah, yeah. and ears That's of the That's fascinating. Animal. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. I'm trying to think what other animals are in. I mean, that the stuff, that stuff, ravens, horses, dragons. I mean, the Dothraki and horses and like. Sure, the there, Dothraki There's so many culture, ways to push that it. That is, yeah. I mean, horses is everything for them. I mean, the, hor- the horse yeah. meat, all of their mythology is built around horse culture. Um. I mean, it's it's crucial for them. But then on top of that, you kind of see the just a hint of that in some of the, the house sigils, you know? Yes, yes. I mean, I love the Mormons. I wish we actually had more bears in the story. <laughs> sure. Well, so did the showrunners. They wanted yeah. a zombie bear. <laughs> Famously. Yes, yes. I love what, what animals get into Martin's world <laughs> and what he does with them. And if I was going to do any writing on on Martin. I think that's the that's the track I would follow was taking you know what we might call like an animal studies approach. Right. To yeah. What's going on? No, in that's Game an of interesting. Thrones. One thing that I was thinking about in terms of how this book is a product of the world in which Martin grew up in is the amount to which this story, this plot and these characters are driven by the problem of sex and taboo. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, for instance, what Bran sees through the tower window, that that's driving the plot. Right. And right. that kind of, the consequences of seeing that taboo in action creates a problem for his character because now he's paralyzed. Or think about Jon Snow's, his entire life is overshadowed by the problem of Ned's supposed infidelity. Um, right. being a, a quote-unquote bastard in this culture, it's a category designed to create room for the fact of infidelity, however you know, however they wanted to define it. And John has this problem. Now, of course, 
we know now that it's not Ned's infidelity. It's This is a Leanna Rhaegar problem. But John's entire life is under this shadow, this sexual taboo being, I don't know, normalized, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Or we think about Daenerys lives her first part of her life thinking she's going to marry her brother. So there's Martin dealing with a sexual taboo there. And her pregnancy also drives the plot. Um, and then, the, of course, the bulk of Ned's plot has to do with figuring out why Robert's sex life um, got John Arryn killed. Right. And, He's connecting the dots between all the bastards. Yeah. Right, right, right. And, and of course, at this point in the story, we don't know yet Tyrion's sort of origin story with Tysha, but we know that he gets into big trouble for marrying below his station. Right. And in all of these ways, it's like sex and taboo related to sex is really driving a lot of this plot. And I wonder if this is sort of like, no, this is an author that grew up in the wake of the sexual revolution. Hmm. Well, and this is where (laughs) I I want to just go back and say, this is not the kind of story we would get from a Victorian romantic medievalist. (laughs) Sure. I I think you're right, though. I, I agree that, I mean, it's not even that Martin grew up after the sexual revolution, right? I mean, he was born in... 48. So he was an adult during the sexual revolution, right? He, he, he lived it. He lived the debates and the arguments, you know, and observed them happening and the kind of cultural reckoning with taboo and patriarchy that, and and the backlash against those. On top of that, that, you you know, know, being, we don't want to sort of rely too much on, you know, the psychology of the author here. But it is no. interesting to me that, that Martin's backstory is is very much Catholic. Mm. So there's a certain amount, you can imagine a certain amount of Catholic anxiety in the backdrop, even if, you know, the, the sexual revolution is being entirely embraced uh, mm-hmm. by, you know, Martin's sort of love of counterculture and Grateful Dead shows and whatnot. Um, <laughs> yes, you know, yes. there's still that Catholic background that there's the, that Catholic guilt back there trying to contend with these taboos. Yeah, and so much of the the sexual taboo, sexual violence is heteronormative, uh, you know, or even the 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 sex that's appro- written approvingly <laughs> uh, by Martin. Yeah, um, so much of it is hung up on those issues and questions within a very confined heteronormative framework, right? Sure. No, I think Jana was, I think Jana Matthews was probably the first to point out that even though HBO is sort of known for, you know, pushing the limits of sexuality on the screen, Game of Thrones was always very limited in the kind of sex it would show. Yes, yes. You know, it was always sort of younger, attractive bodies engaging in some sort of heteronormative uh, activity until, you know, a little bit later we see a little something different. But even so, it's like anything explicit is going to look a little bit like pornography. I'm even thinking about the difference between the book and the show with Renly and Loras, where uh, the show brings Renly and Loras's relationship to the screen. You right. Know? And, it's always and... sort of... More of it's it's rumored in the book, right? Right, right. If you put the pieces together. Yeah, if you put the yeah. pieces together. Yeah. It's rumored in the book. Uh, but then, you know, it, it shows them in very intimate situations. Yes. But not in the same way it's showing, like, 
Littlefinger's brothel. I mean, it's not softcore porn kind of stuff. And I think what Jana's point was is that there was an intentional effort in that first season to sort of capture the young male gaze, in other words. Yeah. Yes. I, and I think the male gaze directs both the show and the book. And the book. Sure. I, I guess, I know, I guess you're right in that way. For some reason, in my mind's eye, and I could be corrected on this, I, in my mind, the show is making explicit many scenes that are not as explicit in Martin's writing. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong? Um. Well, I guess my question would be, is that a virtue? No. <laughs> It's gross. (laughs) Like, I think several times I've talked with Steve on this podcast about how brothels are gross and and on on several levels. But I've never appreciated the whole sex position element of of the HBO adaptation. Right. And I'm thinking in particular about how much a heteronormative male gaze (laughs) does control the narrative, even in the book. And maybe we escape that a little bit like in the case of actually getting Renly and Loris on screen in some ways. Um, but not, not to praise either of them particularly, either the book or the show. Uh-huh. Um, but thinking about those questions, as you said, about like what are the questions about sex, power, uh, you know, and and <sighs> sexual relationships that intrigue and martin and that he keeps coming back to well they for, are for questions martin, in a limited I think set. a lot of this has to do well taboo is one of them for sure yeah um, because incest is such a huge part of this story but i'm i can only speak as sort of an expert on ancient various ancient cultures but right the problem of progeny is huge you know, sort of Egyptian politics or, you know, all the way up to sort of medieval Christian conversations about these things. The problem of progeny is so paramount because it ties up the sort of the value of the the woman in the culture to her progeny, um, bloodlines, succession, property, uh, transfer, you know all of these all of these sort of sexual rules that were developed in the ancient world had a lot to do with progeny the problem of progeny knowing which kid belongs to which set of parents it's it's just yeah. absolutely crucial for the culture to function so you know so you've got rules uh, that are born out of that anxiety about the ability to produce not just progeny, but the right kind of progeny and the right person producing the right kind of progeny. And I, I see that in Martin's story, for sure. You know, the, this whole yeah. business about bastards and, you know, whether Tyrion should inherit Casterly Rock or Robert's issue with Danny now that she's pregnant. That, that These are all problems of progeny. Yeah. And this comes to me to... One of the things you said we might talk about, which is kind of order and chaos in Martin's world and in, and in book one. And there's a lot of chaos right on the surface that's easy to, to point at and say, well, that's chaos, that's chaos. So but I started thinking about, well, what are the forces of order? What actually are the forces of o- order in Martin's world at this time when, you know, the story is like, we're looking at a period of chaos here. Um, but some of those forces of order are something like trying to follow the line of progeny with families. And these sexual mores that Martin is writing about, 
That's one of the forces of order. Like you just said, the society falls apart if you can't track <laughs> who which kid right. goes to which Yeah, father. for instance, Ned's got this book at this point in the story, and he's pouring over this book, and it's a really ridiculous book <laughs> if you think about it. It's like yeah. this is not a page turn. It's just listing the the succession of kings and their progeny. It's just a big list, right? That I mean, that's just one example of uh, of an attempt to push out the chaos and hem in the order, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kinship ties in Martin's world create kind of the order in which everyone lives, and those ties need to be reliable. They need to, you know, people need to be able to rely on them to hold the weight of of their lives and of their uh, conflicts and ambitions and in its kinship ties mm-hmm. that, that are the basis of the house system, but that really, you know, create the boundaries and borders between people that create antagonisms, but that also are expected to keep people together. Yeah. Like the ancient connection between the Starks and the car Starks. Right. 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 right there's exactly. a reason why it's important for those families to remember their kinship, even if it's hundreds of years in the past. Yeah, there's also the importance of making new kinship ties. You know, marriages, weddings in Martin are such key events, often because, you know, at two significant weddings in this story, things do not go as planned uh, by some. Or or there are some who take the reliance on kinship ties and, and the trust that comes with building new kinship ties to destroy uh, the people who come in trusting, right? Well, on top of that, it's interesting. Like, even someone like, right, so we look at someone like Joffrey, who, to his mind, he is both Baratheon and Lannister, Mm -hmm. so much so that he wants both sigils sewn on his coat of arms. Right. And so, you know, you see these ancient coats of arms, and, you know, there's a lot of dividing lines and different symbols on depending on what's important to remember about one's you know family history but even the sort of the psychological sense of where Catelyn is in, in at her at the core of her being she is a tully yeah yeah and yet she's you know she's doing the most out of anyone i think to try to advance the stark cause in the political south in ways that ned probably couldn't figure out or something like that. So she's, she's yeah. in her, the core of her identity is totally. And yet she is, you know, hundred percent stark at the same time. You know, it's like these family ties, they're so complicated. And someone like Catelyn just sort of reminds us how complicated they are. In, in what you just said about Joffrey picking out what's important to remember mm-hmm. and, and Catelyn reminding us of, of important things. I wonder if you could tell us more about me, everyone listening. I mean, I know that you have done a lot of work in what's called social memory. And I wonder. Yeah, I've kind of avoided talking about my day job so far in this. (laughs) (laughs) But but I know that some of your day job has to do with social memory. And I wonder what that gives you. What do you bring to fiction? Mm Mm-hmm. It's, it's an interesting, when you brought this up in the email, I was thinking, you know, it's so funny that I'm so into fiction, and yet for some reason, my sort of my social memory apparatus usually only plays with history in that way, but there's no reason mm-hmm. why, there's no reason for the division. 
It's just that I, I like to, you know, keep my my life compartmentalized or something. But you're right. <laughs> so I guess if there's one sort of thing that I would be known for in the scholarly world is my work on something called social memory. A very succinct way to describe what social memory is. It's really got three things attached to it. One is that that every individual memory is connected to some kind of social network. So so your memories aren't necessarily your own. Some of your memories are your family memories. And some of your memories you got from your society. And these are, you know, bordering on collective memory, which, of course, relates to history. And we've already mm -hmm. talked a little bit about how those can be distorted in, like, for instance, the myth of a lily-white Europe or something like that. Right. Um, the other thing about social memory is that it's the acknowledgement that memory is active it's not passive or it's fluid and not static. In other words, you're always reinventing your memories as you go. It's, it's mm -hmm. not like you've got this vault and you've got this pristine memory that's sort of you can just activate, activate pristine memory. You know, your memories are always changing. They're always in service to the present. Um, not to say that you can't rely on your memory most of the time. It's just that your memory is always being refracted through the stained glass of your contemporary experience. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third thing about social memory that's crucially important is that when groups remember the past, the act of commemoration will often tell you more about their present than it does tell you about the object of the commemoration. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, if I put up a statue of General Lee in the late 1960s, am I doing it to commemorate Lee or am I doing it as a backlash to the civil rights movement? Right. And how much yeah. do I even know about my motives? You know, is, is this conscious? Is this a conscious effort? Or, you know, in other words, why is the memory of Lee important to my culture at this particular po uh, point in history? Or right now I'm watching the, this uh, documentary on Muhammad Ali. Mm -hmm. So then the question is, why is... Muhammad Ali, an important political figure in 2021. Those are the kinds of things that I'm curious about in relation to w what religious people think that they're doing when they commemorate things. Mm -hmm. I honestly, when I'm looking at Martin, there's a certain amount of this that makes me think, of course, this this is a novel written in the mid 90s. And so it's going to betray some of the, the world in which Martin's writing about in the mid 90s. Um, maybe some of his views on war are informed by this common sentiment about the horrors of Vietnam or something like that. Yeah. Um, but I haven't given a whole lot of thought to how much social memory goes into creating an entirely fictional world. I guess if I was going to start, I would start by you know finding the elements of Martin's world that are pretty common in the modern imagination about the medieval world, which is something that I know you've probably done a lot more work on than I have. Yeah. And, and, and of course others, others much more than me. Um, but that's some of what we talked about already today, which pieces of the medieval world go, you know, get pulled forward by someone who has a cultural project right. in, in Boston when they're trying to say, this isn't a city for the Irish. At this yeah, city I think for... like, let's let's go back to the animal thing again. So I think that Martin's going into this story thinking, 
Well, all of my readers will know what a werewolf is. Right. You know, there's no one reading this book who's never heard of a werewolf. And so if I do a little something, if I if I if I flick my wrist a little bit, you know, they think that they know what a werewolf is. No, 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 no. I'm going to throw them a curveball and they're going to see werewolves differently because here we have this merger of man and wolf, but not in a way we've really seen before in these werewolf stories. And because he can assume that we all know what a werewolf is, he can subvert it in such a way that delights us. Like, ooh, I've never thought about it that way before. Yeah. Uh, So I think in many ways... Martin is drawing on collective memories with the intention of subverting them to create something new. Mm-hmm. Well, and you've talked in many of your conversations with other guests about these very, about the chapters as he marched through the book, about the kinds of other texts that he's citing. You know, he as a horror writer, is he engaging Stephen King over here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a fantasy writer, <laughs> yes. is he engaging Tolkien <laughs> over here? You know, like how which audience is he speaking to? You know, is he thinking about, like you said, someone who who knows Tolkien and Stephen King when he's writing. Sure. And I wonder how much of that, I mean, there are certain parts of that that's, that are conscious, right? So there's a certain, right. there's a yeah. certain part yeah. of your memory that is a conscious memory. Like, like I loved, you know, I love this part of what King did. And then there, there are just elements of sort of the, the collective memory of your society that have seeped into you and made you who you are, you know, (laughs) informed your identity. And so you can't help but put those down on the page. So for instance, with Tolkien, you know, how Catholic are these books? He doesn't ever talk about Catholicism in the world, but there's so much of his sort of the mythology he's borrowed from the world of Catholicism that's seeped into his pores that are part of his identity because of the collective memory of Catholicism, that it's almost impossible for him not to incorporate some of those mythic elements in the world that he's building. Yeah, I have a friend right now who's teaching a class called uh, Tolkien and the Catholic Imagination. Oh, there you go. I mean, that's... that's yeah. Exactly. And so, to a certain extent, Tolkien's conscious of this because you know he's using words like you catastrophe which (laughs) you know putting together the the word for good and the word for catastrophic you know to kind of create a word that sounds like eucharist and kind of sounds like catastrophe which is a brilliant a brilliant element of his work and so he's conscious of that but then there's lots of other little things about sort of i know sin and darkness and salvation that coming back to life. Is he you really die, aware that, if you're that he's doing that? I don't <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah. It's, a, it's a good question. You know, world war one is going to be so much a part of who he was after, after he experienced world war one close up. Whereas Martin probably experienced Vietnam on the television screen. And right, so those, yeah. those kinds of uh, cultural touch points are going to be, much different for those two authors, but something as cataclysmic as a world war is going to have all kinds of consequences in individual lives all over the world. And mm-hmm. so, of course, whatever the author is bringing to their own story, it's going to in some way have to deal with those uh, anxieties, whether it's conscious or, or unconscious. Yeah. And so I wonder when we're thinking about like political scheming, empire building, attempts to hold on to and gain power. 
is there any like uh, is there any Iran Contra in uh, <laughs> in Martin's world? You know, like it's so. Interesting. I would love to. Well, there's certainly. I would love to see someone write about. I mean, that. yeah, yeah. You know, you've got these schemers behind the scenes, and that's really where Martin can have the most creativity. You know, for instance, what does Shakespeare not tell us about King Richard? Because right. the stuff yeah. that Shakespeare hasn't explored already, Martin is totally going to want to explore, right? Yeah. He's going to want to sort of, you know, use his paintbrush to fill up the, the negative space. Hmm. Well said. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ask Aaron anything. Aaron, I am excited about Foundation, and my guess is you are too because you are you're you're actually going to be covering this show. Oh yes, yeah. It starts uh, this. Uh, it actually by the time this podcast released, uh, the three episodes will be out in the wild uh, over there on Apple TV. Nice. Uh, we should be well well on our way to. Figuring out what the hell's going on with this foundation business. Okay, so for people who are not familiar with the Asimov classic, can we call it a classic? Oh, it's for sure a classic. Okay, if, if people are not familiar with this classic work of science fiction, can you kind of give us the elevator pitch for this project? Sure. Uh, in the far future of mankind, uh, as humanity spans the entire Milky Way galaxy, a galactic empire, uh, one man, Harry Seldon, uh, discovers a branch of mathematics and psychology that he calls psychohistory yeah. that unerringly allows him to predict mass behavior amongst humans. And on a galactic scale, the mass adds up so much that he concludes that the galaxy, even though everything looks fine at the moment, is about to plunge into civil war and darkness, a dark age that's going to last 30,000 years. Yeah, and it's his not pitch, good. It's not, 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 a, not a great situation. <laughs> it's not good. And his pitch to the powers that be are, if you trust in my plan to set up this foundation, which is going to be a repository for the sum total of human knowledge, we can cut that time down. There's no way to avoid it. It's going to happen. Yeah. But we can shorten that 30,000 years to but a thousand years and, and shorten that human misery. Not eliminate it, but shorten it uh, if, if only you, you listen to my plan. Uh, obviously... This is a, a story that has some resonance today with uh, people, you know, being asked to do short term, uh, you know, maybe inconveniences or giving up some individual liberty sure. versus <laughs> like the collective action and collective right. good. So there's a lot of uh, good themes. Um, you, you mentioned about this being a classic. This is highly influential. I mentioned Galactic Empire. Yeah. This is the first science fiction novel that postulated such an idea. If you didn't have Foundation, you wouldn't sure. have Dune. In fact, Frank Herbert wrote Dune as a counterpoint to Foundation. 
You wouldn't have Star Wars. Oh, I didn't know that. Is that? Yeah. I, all right. So I always, his, his, that's the extreme of the other way. Like right. what one individual can do to a whole galactic empire right. and turn it up on its head. So like sure. it's uh, it's it's kind of like looking at it through the other side of the the lens. And I, I don't want to because it's it's um it's been a minute since I've read these books. I read these books in junior high and high school, and I haven't right. read any of the prequels or sequels. It's just the three mainline sequence. So um, I just reread the first foundation book. Awesome. Jim did too. And I, you know, it's, it was a long time since I had picked that up. Right. You know, it's, it is, it reads like one of these awesome sort of classic 1950s was, it was 1950s, right? Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. 1950s science 1950s. fictions. And I was listening through it and I was thinking, man, how are they going to do that? How are they going to adapt this? This is this is such a a huge you know multi generational plot that it it's, really is. I, I I was almost thinking like, boy, I hope they really butcher this, like in, <laughs> butcher in a good sense. Like I really uh-huh, hope uh-huh. that they take a lot of artistic freedom with this plot because I think that may be the only way to make the adaptation work. Yeah, so like um you know it's there's a lot of commonalities between Foundation and uh the Game of Thrones a Song of Ice and Fire series. Uh Martin sure. famously took a lot of his inspiration from the real life War of the Roses. Yeah, Asimov and this is was, Roman Empire yeah, stuff. Yeah, this right? this was all inspired by Asimov reading Edward Gibson's History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire and like what if we do this in science fiction? Obviously the Rome Rome did not was not built in a day. Did not fall in a day. No. So how do you tell that story? And that's one of the big challenges. How do you tell a story that has flash forwards of 50 years, 200 years, 500 years with a consistent set of characters? Um, one, of, one of the common criticisms of the Foundation series is it's a pretty cerebral experience. You know, the characters are not as well developed maybe as you would expect from a like a modern science fiction novel. Right. And I think that's where the showrunners uh, have some real opportunities to, to shine that like you can, you know, keep of course the plot that's I think fascinating. Yeah. Um, and just kind of like develop the characters. Uh, and you know, the other thing is like these foundation books are novella length. So you could probably reasonably do a, the Hobbit version of this where each movie is three hours long and it, that's true. That's, puffing this out to, that. to like, I think they're they're planning on uh, this being seven to eight ep- uh, seasons of eight or uh, ten episodes each, so about seventy eighty hours of television. You mm. really can take your time and develop this stuff. That's um, interesting. I hadn't thought. And no, actually, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Now, I and so this is no no real spoiler here, but. I'm imagining our astute listeners would be smart enough to know that if it's written in the 1950s, there's a lot of technological advances in our world that haven't happened yet. This is true. So clearly there's a lot of optimism about what something like psychology can do on a mass scale. It's kind of like, uh, like what was it, Edward Nash's uh, Beautiful Mind, like his... Uh... Nash equilibrium and 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 the economic theories of like competition and trade like writ large like what if well, you could keep doing that even just... more recent is the the re- most recent season of Westworld sure yeah you know you've got this big prediction machine happening right so I, I I'm I guess I'm kind of thinking like how are they going to make this seem like a plausible future with 
a 2021 imagination context? It's a good question because there's a lot of things, like you said, uh, you know, cloning, like uh, that was not a thing in the 50s. There's nothing, there's no concept of clones, although um, it does appear in the, that they're messing with cloning in the Imperial family. Mm -hmm. uh, just judging by uh, some stuff we've seen in the trailers, uh, there weren't, uh, you know, uh, interconnected network of computers, uh, computers in their very infancy. Yeah, Wikipedia uh, did not exist yet. Sure. Asimov, famous for creating the rules of robotics. This is yeah. pre him thinking about robots. So there's not even robots, at least in sure. the main trilogy of the series. Um, so it's, it's going to be interesting to see what they kind of like update, because like, I think that, yeah, with the stuff that people have been, the work that's been done on devs, the work that's been done on, as you mentioned, Westworld, uh, the these these concept of like you know what is free will versus what is determination. Like I think the modern audiences are primed for this kind of content, and it's like it's going to be familiar concepts. Like these were like cutting edge in Asimov's days, but it's stuff that we've kind of like kind of worked on the last 75 yeah. years or so and i so think it's, it's interesting it's to me more... yeah right 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 i was just it's... gonna say it's interesting to people like you and me who like we might like the archaeological experience of seeing what kind of imagination was required to make something like star wars possible or something right. like dune possible right. but for like casual watchers who are just sort of in for a, a cool ride um is this the kind of thing that sort of the casual sci-fi fan should be interested in. I'm I it's a good question because the the guy who's the showrunner uh I can't remember his name and his last name's Goyes. Um he is uh primarily known for a couple of things. Uh he wrote all of the Christopher Nolan Batman. Oh, which that's is good. I yeah, like no, those. It's, it's certainly, he also, certainly yeah. He also wrote all of the Zack Snyder Superman and Batman stuff. Uh oh. But he also, in uh -oh. the late 90s, he wrote a little gym called Dark City. Are you familiar uh, with that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. So he's really good at kind of like, you know, he, sp he spans a bunch of different genres. If you've seen the trailers, like, this is some science fiction that, like, we really haven't seen before. This hmm. is like, uh, Big planetary scale, galactic scale civilizations, even looks like there's warfare and stuff depicted like it's it's going to be a visual treat like this really uh, leans into, you know, any kind of technology sufficiently advanced is going to resemble magic. There is almost like a high fantasy element from the trailers of, you know, what this technology can do. And I'm excited just for the visuals of it. And also, mm -hmm. um, you know, to really hook you in. uh there is one of Bald Moose's favorite performers in the last five years, Jared Harris. His first time on Mad Men as Lane Price. He was amazing. Right, Chernobyl. Uh, saw him as, as Captain Crozier, or was it Captain Crozier on uh, The Terror and on AMC, which was amazing. And as you right. said, was this head Soviet nuclear physicist that kind of blew the whole lid right. open on the Chernobyl thing on HBO Chernobyl. This guy is so rock solid. Uh, he's great as a belter separatist on The Expanse. Right. I love everything this guy does, and he is going to be the psycho historian Her uh, Harry Seldon. And his counterpoint, Lee Pace. Uh, I've liked nice. Lee Pace and a lot of stuff he's done. I first noticed him on Pushing Daisies. Um, you know, he was Ronan the Accuser in the first uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, he was most recently uh, in, in Bald Move, uh, under a Bald Move radar, playing uh, kind of a Steve Jobs pastiche on Halt and Catch Fire. He's really, really magnetic, and he's playing the emperor of the galaxy. Mm -hmm. 
So you've got like these two great lead actors and then an ensemble cast of a lot of like up and comers. It reminds me a lot of like, uh, you know, Game of Thrones. I don't know if this is going to be as big a Game of Thrones, but like, you know, who the hell knew who Kit Harington was? Sure. You know, before like there's a bunch of young, unknown, but talented people that are cast in, in key positions. And uh, I'm just really excited because like I feel like with this and Dune coming out within months of each other within a month of each other like we are we are seeing kind of like this resurgence of like really hard high concept science fiction in a way that like you know maybe uh like science fiction is going to start getting its due the way fantasy kind of started getting its due with uh, lord of the rings with game of thrones all that kind of stuff so like i'm i'm just really excited that like 10 years ago like what was Battlestar still on? Like, like, and that's pretty pulpy. But <laughs> yeah, now we've got an embarrassment of riches. I think Battlestar got... was like 20 years ago. Now. I, that's what I'm saying. Like, ten, like we, we had like a dirt. There was a uh, Star Trek was yeah. dead. Star Wars is kind of like, wasn't it? Like it hadn't, the, the, the new stuff hasn't been that great in my opinion. But like now we've got embarrassment of riches. We've got uh, everything from the expanse. We got foundation. We got mm-hmm. Dune coming out. There's new Star Treks. Uh, there's a bunch of Star Wars series coming out that are kind of interesting and niche. We have just like us sci-fi fans just have a, a fucking smorgasbord ahead of us. And I well, I on hope, top of that, I hope these all succeed because the other yeah. thing is if they if they if they if they, everyone hates it, like this is weird and nerdy, we don't like it, then it might be thirty years before we get something like this again. But man, I'm excited. So the other thing that it bodes well for it is that it's an Apple TV thing, and I don't know about you, but I have not been disappointed with much of anything that's been on Apple TV. I could yeah. probably name like seven shows that I've really enjoyed. Uh, and so if, if anyone's sort of like on the fence of whether to actually, you know, pay the, what is it, four ninety nine a month or something. Or burn your seven day trial or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's been, I, I've been really impressed with what it, they've it, put and it went In the last two years, Apple TV went from LOL, who who and what to like winning Emmy like Ted you got you got um speaking of great science fiction for all mankind wonderful yeah, yeah you know Ted great. Lasso's wonderful morning um, shows just started a new season what what's that one that that's about the video game developers that uh um that's got the guy from uh Always Sunny on um but the, oh what, yeah yeah the uh, Galaxy Quest no Vision Quest no some, something like that something uh, quest. Dragon Quest Treasure Quest yes uh, uh, so all right so let's just ima- let's just assume that a lot of the listeners to this podcast will probably want to check out Foundation just because you and Jim are covering it. So I want to ask kind of a meta question about Bald Move. Okay. So like we said, there's a lot out there that's worthy of coverage. How do you guys decide what to cover and what not to cover? Well, it's tough. And Foundation is one of the things that we're kind of really um, kind of taking a leap of faith on. Because mo- first, it's, it's there's a three-step process. Like, what do we think of it? Because if we're excited, like, you know, that that we did, uh, we jumped in on uh, the leftovers because of the weird doomsday cult. And like we we grew up in a weird doomsday cult. So we're like, even if and it's Damon Lindelof, even if this sucks, it's going to be worth kind of like talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also kind of look and see like, you know, what is its pedigree? 
Uh, you know, like, is it, is it based on a well-regarded novel? Does it have a whole bunch of actors that we've heard of? Is the showrunner somebody we're familiar with? And then the other one is like kind of like popularity. Like, if you start poking around, is there communities already around? You know, like uh, we go and uh, you know, there's a ret subreddit for the, a show that has 1,500 people on it. That's uh, whereas if you got something that's got 400,000 people, then it's a little bit more of a sure thing. This is. A bit of a leap in faith because it is a weird show. It is on a show that's uh, uh, on a network that not a lot of people have. Although I guess if you have a, a a modern Apple product, and a lot of people do, I think you actually have a free subscription to Apple TV at least a year of it. Um, so, I, I, but but like it was it was the strength of the trailer because mm. I'd read these books as a kid. And I'm like fucking Foundation and Jared Harris. Uh, yeah. Jim was already half in the door with Jared Harris, and then that first the first couple trailers dropped, and he's like, "Yeah, we should it, we should definitely." The the question was, "Are we going to be talking to this on OTC or off the clock, or kind of like our warehouse for stuff we're not doing mainline podcast, or are we going to do it like as a full on standalone show?" And that's that that's we kind of went all in, and we're doing mm-hmm. it. It's it's uh, foundation and podcast is just, is the show. It's also going to be on Bald Move Pulp if if uh, you're subscribed to that too. But like we're excited and it's it's risky because like we also feel like there's almost no risk to us waiting to see if season one is good. Uh, we can jump in at season two and mm-hmm. start coverage and we have a big enough audience that we usually can kind of like divert people over there. We don't feel like we but like we're we're so excited about this one. Uh, we're kind of going going all in. And it's been a while since we've had like kind of first run good science fiction uh, it's been like since the last year of the expanse, so we're yeah. we're kind of jonesing for it too. That, yeah, that's kind of what all goes in. All right, so by the time people hear this, you will have covered probably the first three episodes in one single podcast. Is that the idea? Uh, I think the first podcast will do kind of like a thematic, uh, you know, uh, discussions, not blow by blow, because then it would it'd be a four hour podcast. Uh, but then each week on the individual ones, it'll be the full on, full recap, scene by scene. Uh, analysis, feedback, all that kind of stuff. So the first show will be, you know, since there's so much to talk about, it doesn't make sense to just talk about this episode and because what pe- people are going to watch them as kind of like one unit over the course of the weekend, and we're going to cover it as such. But then when the show slows down, we will also slow down and take it scene by scene, character by character, like like we usually do. I cannot wait. I love it. I love knowing not only that it's that there's a, a decent show on the horizon, but there there's going to be a really fun sort of supplemental bald move coverage so that I can listen to something in the car or at the gym or whatever. That's always the best way to experience a new show like that. Yeah, I agree. And I'm, you know, usually covering a show enhances my enjoyment if it's good. And, you know, hearing all the the feedback from the community and all the different perspectives and stuff. And I'm, I'm really, I'm really excited to be covering. I hope it's successful, but even if it's not, like I think it's going to be, it's going to be a hundred percent fulfilling to cover. All right, man. So yeah, everyone, uh, check out Bald Move Pulp. Look for Foundation and uh, Foundation and Podcast. If you want to sub yeah. to the individual feed, nice. if you don't want to get into all the oh, the that is the stuff, that's but... the title of your podcast. It's Foundation and Podcast. Yeah, we're kind of okay. like you know the the later Foundation yeah, and course. Earth, Foundation and Empire. Yeah, Foundation and Podcast. <laughs> nice, very good, very good. All right, man, great to talk. Yeah, talk soon. For this week's bird's eye view, I want to talk about the shape of character-driven stories. 
Famously, Kurt Vonnegut Jr. said that every story is about a, and I quote here, man in whole problem. By this, he meant that every key character must fall into trouble, and the plot follows the character trying to get out of said trouble. Vonnegut was being intentionally glib to make a point, but the essence of the point is true. Stories have trouble in the middle, and the trouble is integral. So, because we are at the exact midpoint of A Game of Thrones, I want to talk a little bit about the POV characters. The prologue notwithstanding, there are eight POV characters. This, of course, excludes characters like Robert and Littlefinger. Interesting characters, but we will stick to our point of view, folks. In order of point of view appearance, these are Bran, Catelyn, Daenerys, Eddard, John, Arya, Tyrion, and Sansa. So, in order. Bran Stark. In our Gods of Thrones book, Aaron and I argue that Bran's story arc fits with the classic hero's journey. It has a literal fall from his familiar life, a supernatural guide, a call to adventure, and this Bran is on his way to the pit. But, of course, Barton plans a much longer story arc for Bran, extending well beyond this book. So Bran's pit just gets deeper by the end of this novel. But at the midpoint of this novel, Bran's key problem is managing a new and strange way of living that falls far below his initial aspirations. He planned to be a knight, and now his body will not cooperate with that dream. Next, Catelyn Stark, Nee Tully. Kat's problem began at her doorstep and coaxed her back into Southern politics. She knows that her family is in danger, but does not know why. Worse still, she is acting boldly on incomplete evidence and misinformation. At the midpoint, Kat has stoked the fires of war and has nothing to show for it. Littlefinger, Tyrion, Lysa, and Bronn have not cooperated, and now she is empty-handed and standing on the cusp of chaos. Next, Daenerys Targaryen. Danny is one of two characters on this list who is on the rise. She has trouble, but she began in such a deep pit to begin with that her empowerment functions as ascent. Her continued troubles include her ousted and insecure brother, and of course, Jorah's subterfuge. Next, Eddard Stark. Ned's trouble is that he thinks he's in a detective novel, when in fact he's in a horror story. King's Landing is his haunted house. He's like the bold and reckless guy who walks into the haunted house determined not to believe in ghosts. At this point, his troubles include his growing rift with Robert, his rivalry with Cersei, and his misplaced reliance on Littlefinger. Oh, and let's not forget that Cat has made a couple decisions of late that will complicate his life. Next, Jon Snow. Jon, like Danny, began at a low point. His life was going nowhere, and his home life was uncomfortable, a la Cinderella, Wart from Sword of the Stone, or Harry Potter. The wall in many ways is worse, but he's finally enjoying the benefits of having true friendships. So John, like Danny, is on the ascent. That said, where the hell is Ben Jen? Next, Arya Stark is in many ways adjacent to the rest of the story. In this way, she's like Danny, but she has experienced as much loss as any character in the story. She's been forced from her home. She's learning that her agency is limited due to social and family pressures. 
and her best friend was unjustly murdered, and she's the only one who cares about it. Now, here at the midpoint, she is worried for her father's safety, rightly so, and might need to say goodbye to her new dancing master. And I will say that even though she's experienced as much loss as anyone in the story, she's absolutely going to end this story with more loss. Next, Tyrion Lannister. Tyrion is, in some ways, very privileged and in other ways tragic. His encounter with Cat has left him imprisoned and without his usual recourse for social mobility. At the book's midpoint, he has nothing but his mind and the rumors of his wealth to save him from the moon door. Finally, Sansa Stark. Sansa and Ned are on parallel trajectories. A Game of Thrones isn't kind to either. Both begin with privilege and comfort, and then spiral deeper and deeper with very little hope of redemption. By the end of this novel, it is debatable which character ends up with the worst fate. The key difference, of course, is that Sansa's story will extend far beyond this first book. At the midpoint, Sansa's trouble is Joffrey's rotten heart and her father's incompetence. She thinks that her worst outcome would be to return to Winterfell and live in obscurity. She is wrong. Now, on this podcast, my guests and I have talked lots and lots about what makes this book a masterpiece. Let's add one more accolade to the pile. George Martin is using the old man-in-hole pattern, but he's giving us at least six different versions of it and intertwining them so that one plays upon the other. Finally, Ned is the only POV character whose plot intersects with all of the others. Ned's agency is even felt beyond the narrow sea in the lives of Danny and Jorah. His thread is the most integral to this first book. And of course, we know what will happen to Ned and how his outcome will have the maximal impact for the overall story. It's genius. And that is all for this week.